Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Hi there. My name is Katie Scipioni, and I oversee the prayer team here at Awaken. Uh, However you found us, however long you have been here, we are so glad that you've joined us. We would love to get to know a little bit more about you, um, hear more specifically of your story. And so if you're up for it, you can go to the website, click on the I'm new here button, and that'll take you to a page to fill out a digital connection card, and someone from our team will reach out to you. There is also a space for prayer requests, and that's an open invitation to anyone at any time. It's truly a privilege to pray for you and to support you in any way that you you can. So uh, this morning for our call to worship, I would like to read a blessing over you here at the tip top of the program. Um, It's from a book called Circle of Grace by Jan Richardson, and it's basically a book of blessings um, inspired by scripture passages. And this one is inspired by Luke 21, 28. It's called Drawing Near. So please receive this blessing. It is difficult to see it from here, I know. But trust me when I say this blessing is inscribed on the horizon. It's written on that far point you can hardly see. It's etched into a landscape whose contours you cannot know from here. All you know is that it calls you, draws you, It pulls you toward what you have only perceived in pieces, in fragments that came to you, in dreaming or in prayer. I cannot account for how, as you draw near, the blessing embedded in the horizon begins to blossom upon the soles of your feet. It is one of the mysteries of the road, how this blessing you have traveled toward, waited for, ached for, suddenly appears, as if it had been with you all this time as if it simply needed to know how far you were willing to walk to find the lines that were traced upon you before the day you were born. Amen. Let's sing together.
But before we move on, we're going to sing the song of blessing over our kids. So if you have your little ones close by, bring them a little closer. Let's sing this prayer. May God give you Welcome back to Awaken. My name is Micah, if we have not met. Glad that you are with us. I was uh, sitting over here while we were singing in that first song. I just, I couldn't help but imagining we will feast in the house of Zion. We will sing with our hearts restored. Something about weeping no more. And I was just imagining like the day when we finally get to meet together in this building. It's coming soon, sooner than later, August 1st. And uh, man, that's going to be sweet. I think that will be a giant feast, a celebration. Um, So if you have been uh, hanging around and not um, maybe haven't made it out to the park yet with us, but you're excited about the church gathering again, um, August 1st, friends, it's going to be right here in this place. I'm looking forward to it. Um, if you have been with us in the park, man, what a bummer last week. We had to cancel because of rain. Father's Day, um, I really, really wanted to preach that sermon to you uh, live um, for whatever reason. Uh, I just felt like this medium didn't quite like get to the you know, pastoral sensibilities that one might need to employ to, to preach that sermon. But Be that as it may, it's in the books. It's history uh, only to be remembered and podcasted. So um, speaking of which, we're in Lost in Translation, friends. It's a series we do every summer. Um, This is week two. We started last week with a real doozy, a humdinger, Judges chapter 19, a real disturbing, maybe the most disturbing passage in the entire Bible. I think I I exaggerate a lot of things. I over-exaggerate a lot of things. I'm a little overboard sometimes, but I will stand by my conviction that that is the most disturbing story in the whole Bible. Um, so we did that. This week we're coming, we're coming way back off the ledge towards sanity, and I'm going to read this passage and you're going to be like, why are we even doing that for Lost in Translation? I'll tell you in a minute. But remember, Lost in Translation is a series and it, we do it because we're curious, uh, not curious, well, yeah, curious. We're interested in what is the Bible actually saying? Like, what does it really mean when we read these stories? Because all kinds of crazy things have been said about the Bible and all kinds of crazy things have been said about what the Bible is saying, right? And if we're, uh, if we're gonna, some of these stories in the Bible and these verses, they're downright troubling and problematic if we're going to take Jesus seriously. If we're gonna take Jesus at his word, 
and believe what he says and what he did and what he was about, we read some of these passages in the Bible and we're kind of like, well, which one is it? Because it can't be both. And so we're interested as a church in gathering around the well that is the life and teachings of Jesus. And if that's the case, then when we find dissonance and we find disagreement where Jesus says, I ha- you have heard it said this, but I say this, I say unto you a new word, a new revelation, a new interpretation. And we find things are like, well, which one could it be? We're the kind of church that thinks it's, um, it's actually good news in the world to, to, to lean into that dissonance and try to resolve that tension as much as we can. So that's why we do this series. I hope that it's, it's uh, life-giving for you. I sure do like it a lot. So today we're, pa- we're, we're tackling a passage that may not be controversial on the surface, but rest assured, this, ver- this, this, this section of verses has been used um, to support and endorse some of the worst atrocities the human has known in our history. That's not a joke. So, Romans 13. Of course, it's Paul. (laughs) I hope I get to have coffee with him someday. Romans chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Maybe he'll have a drink with me. I don't even know. We'll see. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment upon themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right. But for those who do wrong, do you want to be free from fear for the one in authority? Then do what is right and you will be, you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. Verse 6, this is why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants, who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Pray with me. God, this morning, as we dig into this word from Paul written so long ago. I pray that by your spirit you would be present to us, especially to the preacher. Uh, May the words of my uh, mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you and um, edifying to the church that's gathered, I pray. In the strong name of Christ and by the power of the spirit, amen. Did you know that (laughs) evidently, I've never actually been inside of a casino long story but when a blackjack dealer is like done at the table they say like I'm done and then they like show their hands like I'm not hiding any cards and then they're done so that's like we're done <laughs> that's not in the notes I know that's surprising to you Romans 13 let's start with a question Why are we even doing this passage for Lost in Translation? You might be asking yourself, Micah, this isn't disturbing. It's not violent. Nobody's dead. Um, So why this passage for Lost in Translation? Let me offer a bit of history for you. 1933, a guy named Joachim Hossenfelter, must have been German, preached a sermon in the Kaiser Wilhelm Memorial Church where he reminded the worshipers of the authority that the government possessed as being from God, unimpeachable, 
unquestionable. And it's this verse and others like it that German Nazis used to um, critique and prosecute the confessing church who opposed Nazi Germany. So this was one of the verses that was used to say like, obey the authorities. They are instituted by, uh, uh, blessed by, uh, ordained by God. So whatever they say goes, this verse. Um, in American history, the British government and its loyalists were, who were opposed to the American Revolution cited this verse as a, a reason to lay down our weapons and, and give up the revolution, friends, because th- this is clearly against the will of God, against the word of God. Uh, it was also used by those who supported the Fugitive, Fugitive Slave Act in the 1850s and Christians who supported the institution of slavery. It's right there in the text, friends, Romans 13. Most recently, it was actually cited by Jeff Sessions, former attorney general of the former president, Trump. I love to say that. You may not. I'm sorry. This is not political. It was, it was cited by the former attorney general of the United States of America, Jeff Sessions, Um, He cites Romans 13 in a speech defending the actions taken by his administration that led to parents and children being separated at the border. Now, again, whatever you believe about the border, whatever you believe about immigration, that's not what this is about. This doesn't seem to be a controversial text, but it has been used to legitimate, to undergird, to support all kinds of government, uh, authoritative, political powerful positions and stances. And so, it really has been used by, uh, in some of the worst cases in American, uh, not even American, in human history, right? So here's what I want to do today. We'll start with some context, 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 Um, location, location, location. The real estate market is hot, friends. If you want to buy a house, location, location, location. If you're going to study the Bible, context, context, context. So, What is Paul saying and why is he saying it? Into what context is he saying? You can make the Bible say anything, so let's get context straight. Then, what is Paul not saying? I'm going to argue that Paul is not saying a few things that most Christians who read this verse traditionally have interpreted it to that Paul is saying these things. And I'm going to argue he isn't saying those things. And then I'm going to argue for what Paul is saying, which is connected to, of course, you guessed it, context. So here we go. Context, 54 uh, AD, so uh, 20 or five years or so after Jesus is dead and resurrected. Uh, The book of Romans is, um, excuse me, the Roman emperor Claudius is murdered by his wife Agrippina, 54 AD. After which Nero becomes the emperor of Rome, the Caesar. And Nero is notorious for his acts later in life. But truth be told, friends, when Nero first began his emperorship, his Caesarship, his administration, he promised that it would be different than Claudius, who persecuted Christians left and right. It was awful for the church. Um, Nero was only 16, so he had some advisors. Seneca was one, a philosopher. He had moral and spiritual advisors as well. But he promised to do things differently, and quite frankly, according to history, we know that he did for the first few years of his, uh, his stay in power. So when things are going well and peacefully, you can almost hear Paul in Romans 13 saying, just don't poke the bear, right? Paul recognizes that Christians living in Rome had previously been under pressure and persecution. He also knows and recognizes what the the role of the churches in the world and what 
Jesus has called us to be and do in the world. And so it's this context into which Romans 13 is written. So, what is Paul not saying? Three things I want to argue. First and foremost, Paul is not saying that all laws are just and demand your obedience. So, for all of you type A, dutiful Enneagram 1s out there in the world, just because a law is on the books doesn't mean it's just. And it doesn't mean that you have to obey it. Now, as an Enneagram 8, I love to say that. There's this, uh, if you've been around my marriage, which you haven't, but I'll let you into a little secret, over the last 22 years, there's a common um, debate or exchange that goes back and forth between Laura and I. It goes something like this. Laura says, Micah, the rules do apply to you. You know this, don't you? You're not above the law. You're not above the rules. They actually apply to you. To which I could be found saying something to the effect of, honey, I know this. I'm not above the law. I'm not above the rules. They do apply to me, but some rules shouldn't be rules. (laughs) You can imagine how the conversation goes from there. But in all seriousness, Paul is not telling the Christians in Rome that if there is a law that because it's a law, by the nature of it being a law, it has to be obeyed and it is just. No. Sometimes there are laws on the books that actually diminish the humanity of another, that, um, that, that extinguish the imago Dei in another human being. And Paul is most certainly not saying that you have to obey these because they are on the books or because they are a law. Martin Luther King, Dr. Martin Luther King, in the letter to Birmingham, from Birmingham, jail, has a great exchange about this. He writes this, A just law is a, is a man-made code that squares with the moral law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. To put it in terms of Aquinas, an unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in the eternal and natural. A law that uplifts a human personality is just. A law that degrades a human personality is unjust. And one who bra- and then he goes on to say, one who breaks an unjust law must do so openly, lovingly, and willing to pay the consequence or the penalty for that. A person who breaks a law that the, his con- or her conscience is telling them is unjust in this way is in reality expressing the highest respect for the law. See, Laura, that's what I'm doing. I have such a high respect in regard for the law that when I'm breaking a law or not following a rule, it's because my moral compass is up here and this law or rule is down here. Again, you can probably imagine how that goes. So first and foremost, Paul is not saying that all laws are just because they are laws and they don't all demand your obedience just because they're laws. Secondly, he's saying He's not saying that you can't challenge the government or elected officials. Again, let's be honest. If we're on the Enneagram train, there would be no reason for Enneagram 8s to even be Christians if we couldn't challenge the law. (laughs) That's the the challenger, is the 8. And I'm all for respect and and respecting those who hold positions of authority. I mean, I'm a pastor, and over my 22 years of being a pastor, I've grown into this role, and actually, I, I have a great deal of respect for it. I'm ordained, I'm a reverend, 
And I appreciate when um, there is a respect for the office that I hold. And likewise, for the offices that others hold. I, I'm all for respect and civility and decorum. But sometimes the government or those who are elected officials in the government need to be challenged. A few stories you might be familiar with from the scriptures. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Three Jewish boys who basically challenged the authority of the government, of the king, of the edict of the king. Nebuchadnezzar makes an idol, says bow down to the idol when the music plays. And these three boys say like, no, we won't do that. Because they have a higher respect and care for commitment to Torah which says, thou shalt have, have no other gods before me. So they don't bow a knee, and they're willing to pay the price. Into the furnace they go. The Boston Tea Party. That's not from scripture, um, but the first one is. The Boston Tea Party, the colonists, they're being taxed exorbitant amounts of money by a government who doesn't allow them to be represented. And so they felt it was an unjust law, so much so that they took the tea and they dumped it into the harbor. Now, one could argue whether or not that was a moral decision, a moral act to take someone's property and destroy it. Be that as it may, in this case, the government needed to be challenged. The authority needed to be challenged, and they did. So Paul's word to the church in Rome doesn't prevent them from challenging the government or speaking out against it. Paul does this all the time. He does it in the book of Acts multiple times when he's before a government official or an authority. He does it in, in the book of Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 2. So that's not what he's saying. He can't be saying that and then say other things elsewhere. That's not congruent. So he has to be saying something else here. A third thing he's not saying is that governments or agents of them can do no evil or wrong because they're appointed or anointed by God. There is a very real way in which this verse is applied to people who serve in elected positions or in government positions um, where they create or participate in unjust systems and then get to skate, you know, get off scot-free or skate by without consequence or accountability because they're ordained by or appointed by or anointed by God. That's bonkers, friends. I think if I'm being totally honest, some, not all, Christians apply this logic around our former president where we don't hold him accountable for his actions and words because he's appointed by God to be the leader. And you could say this about Bill Clinton too, so it goes both ways, right? This is not what Paul is saying. And, and, and honestly, you can look at Israel's history to, to get a clue on this. God anoints all kinds of kings who end up being total wrecks of, of, of kings, where they, they're moral agents, they're free moral agents who get to choose and decide whether or not they want to govern and rule according to the natural and divine laws that are around them, or they get to choose whether they want to rule and govern by laws that serve themselves and cost you for power and for lust. So in conclusion, what is Paul not saying? He's not saying that all laws are just and, and demand us to obey them. He's also not saying that um, governments or elected officials can do no wrong. Uh, and he's not saying that... Uh, what did I say second? It was, um, oh, that you can't challenge these government officials because you can't, actually. Um, and what's, what's shocking in this passage is, is really what's not said or not uh, obvious. 
For, for Paul, who's writing into a Roman context to a bunch of Christians, uh, he basically says, he agrees with Jesus, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Um, which is to say, some things, ultimate authority belongs to God, but God gives permission to some people, in this case Caesar, or an emperor to rule and govern. And when God does do that, which is for a time and for a season that God ordains and God decides, um, you can give taxes to Caesar. That's actually more shocking because Rome probably wouldn't have, had, uh, wouldn't have thought too highly of that, right? The emperor cult, which thought these emperors were gods in and of themselves, would have worshiped these gods. Uh, so for someone to say, no, actually they're small g, gods or governors, whereas capital G is a different plane and another authority, that's actually quite shocking. But what is Paul saying? If he's not saying that you can't challenge authority and you can't challenge governments and these, these leaders are, you can, you, uh, they're, they're, they're ordained, they're given permission by God, but that doesn't mean that they're flawless. What is Paul saying then? Because this verse was, has been used by so many people to say, well, the government, the, the elected official, the anointed official, the ordained official said so, and so we have to obey. So what is Paul saying? The only way to know this is to go back and ask from the beginning about context. What's the context into which Paul is writing the Church of Rome? And how does it inform and shape the message he's giving to this particular church? We read the Bible as if it's forever and always. And in some ways, God is still speaking through Scripture. But it had a direct message for a group of people when it was first heard. So can we, like, try to find out what that is? Context helps us. Remember, not only that, but what's the flow of Romans 13? Like, it doesn't just happen out of nowhere. What happens before Romans 13? What happens after Romans 13? What is Paul saying in a logical argument? And when you begin to ask those kinds of questions, I think you get to, what is Paul saying? You get a very real sense that he's not endorsing every government that's ever existed. He certainly wouldn't have endorsed Rome in its ill treatment of citizens. He wouldn't have endorsed all kinds of governments. But rather, he's giving specific instructions to this church in Rome. To act in such a way that did not compromise or get in the way of or draw unnecessary attention to themselves and forfeit their ability to do the thing they were called to do. Romans 13, in my opinion, what is Paul saying, is a big giant, do this so that you can do that. Do this, focus on these things, so that you can do these other things. But what is this and what is that? Remember, Nero, context. First few years, it was actually pretty peaceful. It went well. Things were going well. So Paul is essentially saying, don't poke the bear. If things are going well, do this. Uh, pay your taxes. Respect the authorities, the governance, so that you can do other things. So what is this? It's obey the governing authorities. If the state makes a legitimate request, you can... You can meet it. Don't oppose it. Pay your taxes. Offer respect. Insofar as you can live at peace with those around you, do so. Because then you will have time and space to do the things you've been called to do as a church. He's essentially saying, don't get caught up in all these things over here. Because if you do, it will distract you from the thing you've actually been called to do in the world. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 2, Paul says, 
Uh, Join me in suffering, Timothy, like a good soldier. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to obey his commanding officer. That's what Paul is basically saying in Romans 13. Don't lose sight of the goal. I fix my eyes on, uh, on the goal for which Christ has called me heavenward. I think that's Philippians. Do this. Obey authority and government so that you can do that. What is that? And this is where context comes into play. So Romans, what happens before Romans chapter 13? Let's read it together. Romans 12. I was holding this page for a reason because so, I knew I was coming back to it. And then it just got in my way, so I moved it, and now here I am. Romans 12, chapter, verse 9. He says this. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. He's talking to the church here. This is like a general like admonition to the people of God. This is what you're supposed to act like. This is what you're supposed to be like. This is like the heart and soul of who you're supposed to be. Love, what, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what's good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. That's backwards. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud, but, will, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Don't be conceited. Don't repay evil with evil. Be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. That's right before Romans 13. What comes right after that? He comes straight back to it. Verse 8, let no debt remain outstanding except for the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever, whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. He goes on at the end, verse 10. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Specifically in Rome. What's happening? You have Jews and Gentiles in the great city of Rome. Gentiles had been converted to Christianity, would have likely been participating in the anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish rhetoric and spirit that would have been in Rome, this goes back in history. Don't have time to explain it all, but trust me, that's there. So we have Gentiles who would have absolutely been participating in this, coming into the faith. You have Jews who are dispersed from, from, from the, uh, the promised land, settling in Rome, becoming a part of these new communities of faith, following Jesus Messiah, and they're all coming together. There's all kinds of reasons for strife, for difficulty, and that's hard enough as it is. Paul is basically saying, if you don't have to fight on two fronts, don't. He's calling the church to be one, regardless of class, gender, race, social status. So don't stir up trouble and draw attention to yourselves, but let the revolution of love and sacrifice happen right under the radar, right under the nose of the empire, which claims to be bringing good news and peace for the world. Paul is saying, don't draw attention to the Christian community, except that of obedient, peaceable people whose real draw is self-sacrificial, Calvary kind of love that's modeled in Jesus and now in the community that bears his name. Don't let the shock that the world has be your unrest or your agitation or your cantankerous nature. No. Especially when it doesn't have to be, when it's peaceful, when Rome isn't persecuting you and killing you. Rather, let the shock be 
your unconditional love and care for and hospitality towards one another. One author, uh, Ben Witherington, commentator, writes, there is no full-blown theology of church and state here. Rather, by implication, a limited endorsement of the state in principle until Christ returns. And I would add, if the government and its officials are levying and governing in ways that are unjust, that are diminishing the humanity of another, then it's the church's voice which must be heard in those moments, challenging and inviting the state to engage with and live up to a higher law. He goes on and says, A government that claims for itself the total and absolute devotion which a creature can give only to its creator, when that happens, it ceases in the moment. It makes that claim to be an agent of divine order. It has become instead an idolatrous opponent to the living God. Governments that claim for themselves divine prerogatives are hence no longer the kind of governments which Paul speaks of in this chapter. So, what is Paul not saying? He's not saying that every government is ordained by God and blessed by God and should be obeyed at all costs. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that you can't challenge the government or authorities or elected officials who serve it. He's also not saying that any of these people are... uh, uh, um, above doing evil or harm. They have, they will, they, they are, and they will. What he is saying is to the church in Rome in 54 AD, if you don't have to fight this battle, then don't. Let what the world knows you for be your love, your sacrifice, your devotion to one another, your humility, your forbearance, your compassion, your forgiveness, your mercy, your hospitality and welcome. Let that be the extraordinary, shocking thing that the world looks in on and says, what is going on there? Romans 13 is not an endorsement of any and all governments. And so when someone says to you, well, you have to obey the government because they're ordained by God, you can say to them, Well, when they're acting in ways that are congruent with the Christ that we know on the cross and in the resurrection, yes. But when they're not, it's the prophet that stands up. Think about the prophets of Israel. They were constantly critiquing the government. It's all through the scriptures. So Paul cannot be saying that. What he is saying. Let us not forget what that which we were constituted for as the church. The radical, selfless, sacrificial love of Christ first given to us, which we must now give to the world. If you're in for that, saddle up. Pray with me. God, as we take just a few moments in silence to think about these words that Paul has offered and what they may have meant 2,000 years ago and what they might mean now. We desperately need your Holy Spirit. Uh, If we're only depending on what I have to say, this is not going to go well. And so, Holy Spirit, lead us, guide us, uh, turn on the lights in our hearts, in our minds. Let us see you for who you are. With unveiled faces, may we gaze upon your goodness, your glory, your forgiveness, your mercy, your justice, your grace, 
And may those realities of who you are transform us, shape us into the kinds of people who can love like you loved. And who can speak words of critique when needed to government or authority or officials elected who are participating in creating and profiting from unjust systems and laws. So we need you, Holy Spirit, to help us discern what is what and which way is up. So speak now, we pray. Gentleness 
On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Whenever you eat of it, do it in remembrance of me. Similarly, in the same way, he took a cup and he blessed it. And he said, this cup is a new deal, a new covenant, a new arrangement between me, God, and you, humanity. And it's written, it's made certain by my blood, which will be shed for you. So when you drink of this cup, remember what this means. Do it in remembrance of me, what I've taught you. So as we come to the table, it's important to remember that this is the table of the Lord, not the church. It's made ready for those who love God and those who want to love God more. So come, you who have much faith or you who have a little bit of faith, you who have been here often or maybe not for a long time or maybe never before, you who have tried to follow, you who have failed. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. So come, not because I invite you, but because Christ, the resurrected one, invites you to come and be fed, to be healed, made whole, sent back out into the world, to be Eucharist, the good gift. Did you know that? That's what Eucharist means. Eucharist, good gift, grace the good grace. So when we take this Eucharist, it's the good gift of God. It's the body and blood of Christ suffered on our behalf. Beat something that we could never beat. Ourselves, death. And offers us life in, in exchange. And so when we come to this, that's what we get. The good gift of God, the grace of God. Not just for us, the blessing of Israel in Genesis 12 wasn't just for Moses and his friends. It's for the whole world. So as you come, take the gift. Receive the gift. If you have a little bit of faith or hardly none at all, it doesn't matter. Take it. And then, turn around. Let it fill you up. Give it back to the world. Eucharist. So, as you take the bread, I'd invite you to hear these words, the body of Christ broken for you. Take and eat. As you take the cup, I'd invite you to hear these words, the blood of Christ shed for you. Take and drink. Friends, it's good to be together. Even though I can't see you, I can imagine you. So I see you in my mind's eye. And a few things you should know about the life of our church, things that are happening. First and foremost, there's a camping trip coming up. The deadline for that is June 30th, so the end of this month. The trip itself is July 16 to 18. Um, you can sign up for that on the Awaken Weekly, through the Awaken Weekly or on the website. So please do if you're interested. Discover Awaken is coming up. If you're new, you're just checking us out. Love to tell you more about the church. Have Give you an opportunity to ask questions of us. July the 11th, 1230 to 2.30. That's the day we started the church 11 years ago. Hey, it's our golden birthday, July 11th. Oh my gosh, that's awesome. <laughs> Maybe we should do something special.
and July 7th. There's a creative bonfire, Melody Olson's leading, 6.30 to 7.30, it's in the parking lot. You can register on the website and in the Awaken Weekly. Friends, before I leave you and bless you, I'll say this. In reflection, I may have said some things in such a way and with a tone that maybe didn't feel like a well today. And that's more about me than it is about you. So I have to remind myself that I'm everybody's pastor. And not everybody agrees with me. Sometimes what I think and feel and believe about any number of things comes out. And whenever it does, I try to offer it in a way that it's like open-handed and you don't have to agree with me, but I think, I'm, I'm, I wonder if maybe you didn't feel that today. And if that's true, then I'm sorry. Uh, that's my, it's always my intention. Um, but what are you gonna do? So if you felt that, I see you, I hear you. Uh, and let me offer this blessing to you. The Lord bless you and keep you, even if you disagree with me. Lord lift up his countenance to you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his no wait. The Lord lift up his face to you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you, give you his peace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the church said together, Amen. Grace and peace. Hopefully we'll see you next week in the park. facebook.com backslash awaken community or on twitter awaken community see you next time